Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Orphanage. With us again is Lauren Grieve. Hello. This film serves as an interstitial epilogue to our Del Toro season, since if the fates are kind, GDT will continue making movies for many decades, and we will be right there to talk about them. So it's a sort of a, and that's all, folks, for now. Here's a little bit extra, and it just happens to be an extremely strong point to end on. But one of the films that he played... It is one of the films he played in a producer role, and it is quite capable of standing alongside his oeuvre. In fact, he stated that if a nasty accident were to befall director Juan Antonio Bayona, he would have loved to have helmed this one himself. However, his attempts to manoeuvre Bayona towards open elevator shafts or wood chippers all failed, and this ended up being the first significant film for the man who would go on to direct The Impossible, A Monster Calls, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. He did a monster call. Oh, yes. That explains so much. It does. This is another one of those films that you absolutely have to see. We recommend that you see it before we talk about it, since it is a mystery and having it unfold is truly compelling. This is a ghost story and a treasure hunt with many of the trappings of the gothic romance that Del Toro is perennially drawn to. Only this love is maternal. It is a companion piece to The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. It is, like those other two, in the running for my favourite example of this crossover of genres. Still, for those who would prefer to hear our deconstruction first, and for those who have already seen it, I will plot summarise. This is going to be quite a long and detailed one, as it is intricate and it involves a lot of setup and payoff. In fact, this film albeit a drama, rivals the Cornetto trilogy in this regard. Everything is important and has some kind of balanced counterpoint, meaning that in subsequent viewings, little things that you forgot or disregarded reveal themselves as parts of the grand puzzle. So even if you've seen it and know what happens, this synopsis will probably enrich your perspective. So we begin with the title sequence, which features the hands of children tearing away wallpaper to reveal secrets, hidden lettering for the credits. In Spain, 1975, a young girl named Laura is adopted from the orphanage that she lives in and is thus separated from her childhood friends, several of whom have disabilities like blindness or a dodgy leg. We see her just before this playing a game of one, two, three, can't touch me, whereby she has to knock on wood with her back turned and the kids have to tag her while she isn't looking and be still when she looks. Some 30 years later, she purchases the now disused building and moves in with her husband, Carlos, and seven-year-old son, Simon. 
Their plan is to make it a place of refuge for families of particularly disabled children to lighten their load and provide happiness of the kind that Laura remembers experiencing here. So it's not going to be an orphanage. It's going to be more of a, what did you call it? Uh, it looked like they were setting it up as some kind of respite home. Respite home. Okay. Simon is agitated by imaginary friends and has trouble sleeping. Laura tells him about her time in this place and the nearby lighthouse that used to work. Laura is visited by an aged social worker called Benigna, who is interested in working for her and looking after Simon. We find out that Benigna knows Simon is both adopted and HIV positive, kept alive and in relative health by medication. We find out that Benigna knows Simon is both adopted and HIV positive, kept alive and in relative health by medication. Laura is upset by this strange woman intruding with such personal information and asks her to leave. Waking up to odd noises in the night, Laura investigates and finds Benigna poking around in the coal shed. The old woman flees, leaving Laura bewildered as to what she was looking for. Simon has apparently made a new friend, Tomas, an invisible child discovered in a cave down by the beach. He asks his mother if Tomas can come back to the house and play, and she agrees. Simon leaves little trails of shells to lead the way. When Simon draws Thomas, he is depicted with a mask on, surrounded by five other children in uniform dress that we have already seen Laura and her childhood friends wearing. Like Peter Pan, Simon says that these six will never grow up, and neither will he. Simon convinces his mother to go on a treasure hunt with him, one that, if solved, will grant the victor a wish. The children, he claims, like to play a game whereby they take something that you treasure and you have to follow a trail of traded clue objects in order to get back what you love. The treasure hunt plays out all around the house, culminating in the discovery of the documents outlining Simon's adoptive status and serious health condition. He is angry with Laura for keeping these secret and he is clearly scared of dying. His parents reassure Simon that they will take care of him. Secretly, Simon remains unconvinced of their love and dedication, this violation of his trust hitting him hard. At a party for the prospective new patrons of this children's home, Simon tries to get Laura to visit Tomás's little house, La Casita du Tomás. Things get stressful, and in response to his nagging, she eventually strikes him, immediately regretting it. Simon runs away, and Laura has to try to handle the party with her husband, Carlos. Laura sees a sack-headed boy with a whistle around his neck, who appears to her alone when she is searching for Simon, reacting defensively when she tries to pull the mask from what she believes to be her son. This child locks her in the bathroom and runs away. Injured from her encounter, Laura gets out and searches the party for Simon. To add to her growing confusion and panic, the party is a masquerade. She scours the house while everybody stares in bewilderment. Simon is not found in the bedrooms or kitchen. The cupboard under the stairs yields nothing but junk and heavy bars, which she hastily shoves back inside. Eventually, she runs to the cave at the beach and seems to glimpse a child in there, but the tide is coming in and it is too dangerous to reach. She is dragged back, further injuring herself and putting her leg out of action. Later that night, after receiving medical treatment, Carlos gives her his St. Anthony necklace for luck and tells her to return it when she finally finds Simon. He does not believe in its mythical properties, but crucially, he tells her she does. Simon does not reappear, and the police investigation is very heavily tilted towards abduction by an adult. 
that first night after the worst day of her life, Lara is woken again by strange noises, including thumps and whistling, that seem like they are coming from within the walls of the house. After hearing a startlingly loud crack, she wheels her wheelchair to Simon's room to find a doll in his bed. Six months later, Laura and Carlos are still searching for Simon, refusing to give up hope that he is alive somehow. They spot Benigna, who is immediately killed by a van. She has a whistle around her neck and carries a sack-headed doll. The police find that she previously worked at the orphanage 30 years ago, though Laura does not remember her. She sees her friends in Benigna's photographs, Rita, Martin, Victor, Alicia, Guillermo. Silent Super 8 film reveals that Benigna has a deformed son, Tomas, who is kept separate from the other children. One day shortly after Laura left, the children played a game and mischievously took Thomas's sack mask, hoping for another of their treasure hunts. However, this left him in the cave on the beach, too ashamed of his features to leave. The tide came in and he drowned. Unable to grieve for Simone, a child they don't know is dead or alive. And since the police have turned up nothing, Laura and Carlos permit a group of paranormal investigators and a medium to explore the orphanage and attempt to make contact with whoever might be there and might know where Simon is. Aurora, the psychic lady wearing an old staff uniform from the house to facilitate her mental journey, discovers the invisible ghosts of children who are dying in agony, locked in their bedroom. Aurora tells Laura that ghosts occupy a bridge across time, endlessly replaying like an echo. She describes them like a scar or a pinch that begs for a caress. She says before she and the rest of the investigators leave that Laura is hearing but not listening and that seeing is not believing, it's the other way around. She says that those close to death are the most receptive, which Laura concludes is why Simone could see the children. Alone for the day, Laura asks the children to reveal themselves. She is led to a series of five dolls with one missing, hers, which she realises was the one left in Simon's bed. She finds with the dolls a photograph of Simon and her, which begins another treasure hunt with one of the clues being a doorknob with no door. Laura searches the coal shed, remembering Benigna's intrusion, and discovers the ashen remains of her former childhood friends. Benigna blamed the children and poisoned them all to death. She was attempting to recover these remains recently when she was discovered by Laura. Carlos is unable to cope with Laura's degenerating mental state and obsession with still finding Simone, whom he is now convinced is dead and gone. At her request, he leaves Laura alone for two final days in the orphanage, and she sets up the house as she remembers it, resetting the bedroom and laying out the favourite meal of the children, dressing in the uniform again of one of the staff. She waits, exhausted and delirious, taking medication and growing increasingly frustrated at the game these unseen children are playing. Confounded as darkness falls, she attempts a game of one, two, three, can't touch me. This draws the ghosts out of hiding because she is genuinely ready to see them now. They run from her, as per the rules of the game, but direct her to the cupboard under the stairs. There is still nothing in there but junk, but they shut her in, and she finally looks closer, finding a secret door, wallpapered over, which the doorknob obviously fits. This next bit's going to be hard, folks. Making her way down into the catacomb of the basement, she finds where Tomas used to live and draw, exhibiting quite a meticulous talent. Searching further, she finds Simon, alive, 
and well, and happy to be reunited with his mother. Then the door upstairs closes, and the children's laughter is heard. Holding him in her arms, Laura tries to contain her overwhelming fear and tells Simon to think of the life that he can have back and to just pretend that Thomas, the other children, their circumstances aren't real, to close his eyes and to make them go away. The lights go out, and Laura, with the cruelest horror, finds that the blanket she is cradling is empty and that the tiny, emaciated form of a child slumped below a sheer drop and a broken railing still wearing Tomás's sack mask is Simon. He hid in this little room on the day of the party, dressed as Tomás, hoping she would come and find him, having set up the second elaborate treasure hunt which ended in the doorknob. The unwitting search of the cupboard above resulted in the heavy bars blocking the door and his attempt to escape on the first night resulted in the fatal fall. Making her way back through the house, bundling up his body, Laura cries at the dreadful unfairness of their situation. She played the game. She found her treasure. She makes her wish, which is to have Simon back. She overdoses on sleeping pills, waking up to find the silver rays of the lighthouse shining past her eyes. Simon is alive in her arms and asks if he can wake up. His wish for completing the first treasure hunt was that Laura would stay and look after all of them. As she holds him, the children appear in the bedroom, now revealed in the light to be entirely harmless and a little scared. Tomas, no longer separated from the rest of the group, no longer hiding in his cave or his secret room, enters, minus his sack, and guides the blind girl over to examine Laura's face with her hands. Alicia confirms that it is indeed their childhood friend grown up, like Wendy, which fills the children with happiness. Laura, likewise filled with joy at being reunited, begins one of many more stories. At the close, Carlos returns to the house and finds in the same bedroom, now emptied of furniture, Laura's necklace. He smiles to himself, knowing that his wife and son are safe together. The End Let's just talk about the casting before we um, uh, get on to the, the specifics of what happens in the movie. There are three major roles in this which are so superbly cast. Everyone's extremely well cast, but there are three where the film goes from being what could have been a, a really good film to being a great film because of these casting. I'm wondering if Lauren can tell me which three they are because Sharon can see them. Oh, I mean, the first one's obviously the casting for Laura. Yeah. That's I mean, she uh, was, Belen Rueda as Lara is. Yeah. Yeah. She was unreal. Um, and then I would also say that the, the medium is an obvious one because she was incredible. That whole scene was so good. Uh, that's uh, Geraldine uh, Chaplin. She is the fourth daughter or the fourth child of Charlie Chaplin. Oh, I wondered. Uh, did did you watch the one of the behind the scenes like making of? of? <laughs> okay, well, the, the very first one, the big one, uh, where they talked about like who she that, that she, it was like such an honor to work with her. I'm like, should I know this person? Uh, okay, no, I'm see, sure Alex will tell me. I that I don't remember <laughs> them actually ever saying that. You may have had different uh, extras to me, so. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, no, she's actually been in all of uh, uh, Bayona's films so far. She was in a monster call. She was the headmistress who said, what could I possibly gain from punishing you? Uh, and in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, she plays the uh, woman who looks after a very significant child in that film. And uh, I haven't seen The Impossible yet. Going to remedy that in a day's time. 
saw the impossible. It's fairly grueling to watch, but it has a young Tom Holland, a.k.a. Peter Parker. For the third one, though, I kind of want to say the actor that they had play Simone, because... Yeah, correct. That's, he... These are all this three for three. Well done. <laughs> Carry okay, on. very good. Uh, Roger Princep the... is, is the kid, yeah. Yeah, in uh, and again, in the behind-the-scenes footage that I saw, they actually talked about how it was he was really, really good in rehearsals, but really bad actually when the cameras were rolling and they had to do all kinds of like little tricks to make him less mechanical in his acting. Um, Apparently, um, what was her name? Belen? Belen Frueda. She actually like wore masks and things to like surprise him and make him genuinely smile at certain parts was like a thing that they had done huh. uh, that they talked about. So good. I, I picked out the same three because I really don't think Carlos, who I wrote a, at one point, one of the shots makes him look like Spanish Alan Tudyk. Um, I really don't feel like they gave him a whole lot to do. And he was just kind of like, I am the the logical doctor character here who is going to play against like everything that's going on. It's, um, it's like, very cool talk- for me to say, but he is the, um, he's the Spanish Jason Clark. Ah, uh, do you remember seeing, uh, this, the middle planet of the apes film? Yes. Yeah. He's like the perfectly serviceable, sympathetic human guy who isn't Gary Oldman. Oh yeah. He was the, uh, uh most recent John Connor in the perfectly not at all serviceable Terminator Genesis. But I, but I, oh, that's where I saw him from. Okay, that's that's where I recognize him, his face from. Yeah. But he's not I, a I really, bad guy. He's just not oh, no. exciting to watch. Well, I also I don't think they gave him a whole lot to work with, but I think yeah. that was intentional because yeah, it's, it's it, the spotlight's all on uh, um, Laura. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like we talked about it. Well, like you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, this is very much like a maternal ghost story. So the main focus should be on the mother, mm. the child. And in this case, also the medium, which almost acts as like a bridge between the two on point. Mm. So, although she has a grandmotherly air about her, very much so. Yeah. I think as well the um, the lack of input that Carlos has in a lot of what goes on um, is that this is also a story about Laura walk- working through her childhood, yeah. which he was not a part of. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of. Um, it's it's not explicitly stated in the text, but there's a lot of scenes where it feels to me like he deliberately steps back in order to give her the floor. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I actually have something related to that that I want to talk about, but it might be like a lengthier piece that we talk about later on when we talk about what is a ghost, okay. because that's a direct callback to the devil's backbone. Okay. Carlos does have a little bit of an arc, though, because uh, when he gives her the necklace at the beginning, uh, or the end of act one uh you know she says you don't believe in this and by the end when he finds it he believes yeah that goes directly into what i want to talk about later so okay uh, um yeah and and yeah roger roger princep the the, the kid who plays uh, simon if you didn't find this kid adorable then the whole film is broken if you like a lot of people who talk about the Babadook, uh, who especially people who don't have kids yet, uh, say that kid was so annoying and wanted to strangle him. To that end, the Babadook feels a little bit broken for just regular audiences. You kind of had to have, you know, that um, if you don't uh, love me at my this, you don't deserve me at my this. The kid in the Babadook is the first picture. <laughs> 
uh, Simon is kind of both, but much more the second picture. He is this 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 wonderful, sweet little boy who you can see the fear on his face. He's very expressive, and then like his joy is felt intensely. He's a little bit annoying, but in a way that's very understandable for a kid. And um, like you feel his absence. Like they, once they take him away, you are on board with Lara's uh, uh, panic. They give you time to really get to know this kid. Mm. Like, you know, there's a, a movie called Ransom, which we never, ever talk about with Mel fucking Gibson in it. And at the beginning... Is that his official name now? Yeah. Mel fucking Gibson. At the beginning, Brawly Nolte, his son, we get one scene with the two of them together, and then he gets kidnapped and the ransom is on. Mm. If you spent the first act getting to know this kid and seeing him relate to his, his parents, yeah. that would have been a much more powerful film. Mm. Ron Howard again. Yeah, and they they set up the relationship between um, Simon and Laura with all of these beautiful little moments where not a massive amount transpires, but you see um, the the trust between them. You see how uh, the phrase I was going to use there was she's she's incredibly inventive and creative as a mother. She's very inventive and creative as a person, mm. um, but it, it really comes out in her relationship with Simone, all the little stories that she's constantly telling him, the little protection rituals she comes up with for him, um, the, uh, the, the sort of little homely acts that she does like the stitching the quilt and um, explaining the sequel to uh, Peter Pan for him and things like that it, it just creates this sense of um, homely safety that he dwells in mm. um, which means that when that is taken away it hits that much the harder that's not the sequel to Peter Pan that's the end of the original play which they edit out of most of the films what when uh, Wendy comes back with the daughter? Yeah, I mean oh. it is the the, the Disney sequel, uh, the straight to DVD like Return to Neverland thing. Okay, but yes, that is actually how the J M Barry play finishes. What use does Pilar serve? Because I didn't really mention her in the um, synopsis at all. This is the police investigator assigned to uh, get back um, Simone, who fails. So, so what purpose does she serve in the movie? Well, I think that she she serves to support Carlos in the in the. Um, the logical side of denying the idea of these ghosts and these belief structures being at play, uh, but from a more uh, societal perspective, almost, because she's like part of, you know, she's part of the police force and she's backing up that kind of claim. But I think it's also really important that she's a woman as well. Mm. But I don't really have a whole lot more beyond that is what I'm thinking right now. I'm, do you have more? No, Sharon? there's, there's no. very little to her character. Um, Sharon? I, I think for me, one of the... You're not missing anything is what I mean. It, it's, okay. It's not necessarily... Um, it's, it's kind of who she represents as a wider hmm. field rather than who she is herself. Um, but her presence is both 
Occam's razor and the absence of Occam's razor for me, the, the, the paradox there, because the one thing that struck me this time, which it, it had never bothered me before, and we've seen this film several times, is that when uh, the police get involved and start looking for Simone, the the most obvious thing to do to me would have been to tear that house apart from top to bottom. Strip it down. And yet... Well, the narrative of the movie requires that they don't do that. I know, I realise that. But one of the first conversations that Pilar has with um, Laura and Carlos is around the fact that Simon is adopted, the fact that he has this questionable background, the fact that Benigni was hanging around. They look to abduction almost immediately. And so they miss the obvious. Right under their nose. Oh man, you say the obvious, but that door was really well hidden. And I don't know, I know, but I, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't mean the obvious in terms of the room was obvious because it's not. That's the whole point. But the yeah. the um, all right, maybe the obvious is not the the phrase I'm looking for here. The simplest explanation, which is that he is still somewhere in the house. Mm. Well, well, wait, wait. What's a simpler explanation that someone kidnapped the child? May or may not be, you know, the biological parents. Or that the child had discovered a secret room in the basement and fell down the stairs and broke his neck. I mean, but I, you I see say it like that. You're getting very yeah. specific there, and yes, when you put it that way, I take your point. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I but I see what you what you mean too, and I'm thinking maybe she maybe she is here to represent womanhood without motherhood. Because you would think that if she was a family woman herself and would have a child, she would have mentioned that at any point. I, but she explicitly doesn't, and she's kind of framed as such to just be like this um, <laughs> this very logical kind of beep-boop, I am a robot cop, uh, but very explicitly a woman. And they actually do, again, in the, the making of footage, they say like it was very important for them to have her be played by a woman. Mm. And I'm like, I, but they didn't say why. And I'm like, but why? And I'm, I've been trying to think of like what the purpose was, and that's the best I can come up with. I would say it's not so much that she's a woman without motherhood. Um, and if you look at it through that lens, you could argue that so is Laura. Simon's adopted. He's not biologically hers. However, not that that's, that makes that any less motherhood, that she's, you know, with the, what she's given to him and, and she's raised him at the end of the day. But I think Pilar is more that she, it's more that she's a woman without intuition. Because all the other female characters in this, from Laura to Aurora to... Is it Alicia, the little girl who identifies Laura at the end? Yes. They win, inverted commas, through use of their intuition. Through trusting their gut and their understanding of a situation without having to have a logical explanation to it. Okay, so that makes me think. Do you think that she is in this film to represent what Laura would be if she gave up? In a sense. To a degree, yes, that that does make sense. And I think the the support group that they go to um, after the six month mark, you see them at a a group for um, parents who've lost children. And um, there's a woman there who is she's talking about a, a a daughter who has died and so she has that closure which Lara doesn't have because she knows her daughter is dead 
and she has she seems almost serene about it and she talks about a vision that she had of her daughter smiling at her in a way that said to her I'm safe I'm happy you don't need to suffer for me and that is kind of she's diametrically opposed to Laura in that she is she is who Laura cannot be because Laura doesn't have that certainty but she is also what Carlos can be at the end. Yes, that's true. To me, Pilar uh, represents uh, um, possibly even simpler than what you guys are describing, just rationality and uh, logic. Uh, The sort of person who would never accept what the uh, psychics and mediums come up with to immediately go, that there's no basis in fact for this you're clutching at straws just just for out of, out of desperation we can't follow this route the the most likely thing that would have happened to simon neither, neither of you guys came up with which is that laura saw him briefly in the cave when she was running towards him and the tide was coming in and they they trawled the the shore and they couldn't find him, but ultimately it's the most likely thing that he ran to this hiding place, mm. then the tide came in and was swept out to sea and drowned and would wash up elsewhere. Mm. Yeah. That's the that's kind of the re- if you there's a shot of the cops circling the house uh on that first night, and there's they're sort of looking at the ground with torches like they're gonna find anything in this <laughs> kind of is he here? No, still it's nothing. Why is that blade of grass? <laughs> no. And, and there's this almost like sort of to be seen to be working as opposed to genuinely desperately trying to find this, this kid. Because yeah. they've seen enough cases where the child disappears and the kind of clues that you're looking for aren't surfacing. Yeah, they did go through the cave after the tide went back down. Yeah. Um, but and I guess at that point, it's like, OK, well, this is the obvious, but, you know, well, maybe there are some other things we can examine, like abduction. And because, you know, the uh, kind of what you're what you're implying is the cops be like, oh, well, job done. And just, like, <laughs> because they oh, couldn't find him. Clearly an abduction. <laughs> and that's the end of that chapter. Yeah, it's like, Did oh, they... well, no, clearly he's just drowned in the ocean. He'll wash up someday, I'm sure. Or yeah. just get eaten by fish. <laughs> In the um, uh, the clues that were la- laid down with, did they say that they found Tomas's body in the cave? They did. Right. So there's precedent there for if if that happens, then it would remain. The film is masterful at conveying information without cheating. There's maybe a couple of times, which I've got, I've got a few listed here, where I'm a little, there's a question mark next to them. But all of that s- stuff that I told you in the um, synopses, there is a hell of a lot of densely packed information in there. J.K. Rowling levels of clues in amongst the things that actually aren't all that massively important that um, we are able to blindside. For example, the, the bit with the, uh, the, the metal rods and the, 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 they look like bits of a, a like scaffolding or something that gets slammed up against what is eventually a secret door. When that happens in the film for the first time, you are looking at it from the back of the closet and Laura slams them forwards and then closes the door and then runs off. When you see that exact same bit happen again later, we get the one additional shot where they ram up against the door. 
where if Laura had been looking at them and paying close attention to what was happening, she would have caught it. Because the door is open a crack at that point, isn't it? And her putting the pipes against it closes it. See, here's the thing. Simon, whether he was assisted by the ghosts or not, put a hell of a lot of trust in his mother to find that doorknob and effectively locked himself in to this little house. I, uh, yeah, I think uh, it would have to be open a little bit so that he could crawl in and then close it a a bit behind him so that when she came... This is painful. When she came to the door to to just search for him in the in the upstairs cupboard, he could feasibly have gotten out until she she rammed those things up against it and absolutely prevented it. And plus, like I say, he didn't have the doorknob. Now, the doppelganger time loop. Did you see the deleted scene with the other side of this, Lauren? I did not. Right. This one's going to blow your mind. Oh, boy. At the beginning, after it says, uh, you'll be missed, Laura, there was a little scene where she's in the bedroom with all the kids as a child, and uh, minus Tomas, and they're all sad to see her go, especially Victor who, if you remember, is the last one to approach her at the very, very end. He seems to really like her and to be really personally hurt and let down by her leaving. He's the one who tags her in the game. She she hugs them all and then goes downstairs, and she's wandering around the orphanage on her own as a child, and then she encounters Tomas and is scared by him because she doesn't know who he is. He's been kept out of sight this whole time, and she drops her doll, the doll of her. Tomas picks it up, And then she runs out into the garden, looks up at the window and sees a shadowy figure holding a sort of a a draped shape in her hands. And then she runs off, uh, you know, presumably to get adopted in the garden at night. And that is the beginning of a time loop that gets closed at the end. I didn't mention the doppelganger thing. But for those who haven't seen it, there's a uh, uh, one of the psychic-type paranormal investigators giving a lecture on the nature of doppelgangers, and you will see your double at a point when you are at a passport to the other world. And it's uh, historically, in, in terms of um, tradition and superstition, you see your doppelganger just before you're about to die. But in this case, the ghosts are so repeatedly referred to as part of a a, a, a break in time, a scar, a loop, uh, an echo, that this opening kind of sets up almost a sci-fi concept where she sees herself about to die as an adult and then looks down and sees herself. And that is, in fact, after she has passed on in the uh, when she stands up and, and looks out of the window because she's now gone back in time because that's when she can see the lighthouse And it's so good that they left that out because it makes you expect way too much. You get to meet the kids close up really early and feel affection towards them. You get to see Tomas too early. She sort of establishes a relationship with Tomas in a kind of, oh, the scary sackhead kid. And then 
it's never really brought up later that she's like, yeah, I remember the scary Satcape kids. So when they were, this was like stuff that they filmed that when they cut it out made the film so much stronger to the point where you don't even really have to acknowledge that these things happened. But the doppelganger theory seemed to revolve around the fact that Laura herself was in some kind of time loop. Not exactly Donnie Darko, but something that is in keeping with the ghostly temporal break mm. that we're experiencing. It's interesting that you parallel it with Donnie Darko there because I did get a feeling that there's an element of survivor's guilt in Laura. I don't know how much she knew about what had happened to the children, um, but... There, there did seem to be a sense that she had let them down by leaving yeah. and that this was her place, this was where she was supposed to be and that it, her first act of coming back and setting it up as a respite home was a way of not necessarily making restitution but, but to give something back to what she got from being there um, and that by rejoining them at the end there's a sense of this is her home, this is where she is supposed to be with these children. And that sense of fatalism runs through Donnie Darko as well. Mm. Yeah, as you were saying, talking about that scene, Alex, I couldn't help but think, my goodness, I'm glad they cut that. Yeah. That would have made no sense. It's quite heavy-handed um, and, and it would leave more questions than it answered. But this actually relates to the thing I was talking about earlier that I wanted to mention, because I think it's very relevant. Um, the whole, what is a ghost where they talk about it being an echo of the past. And, and they even explicitly talk about Aurora combining the past and the present, um, like very explicitly. And that being how she can see the ghost, how she can interact with it. And throughout this film, like Laura is, is clearly the one that wants to move back to this orphanage, that wants to reopen it for special needs children. And she is, like, every step of the way, more and more reliving that past, up until the point where she literally recreates it and wears the the garb. And that's when she really sees the ghost for the first time, is when she herself is becoming an echo of the past. So it's almost like she's becoming a ghost before, at least in, like, the, the narrative, before literally becoming one at the end and that's why she got to see the the children and i find that to be a great juxtaposition to the very last shot because carlos who leaves uh you know before all this happens apparently comes back to the orphanage and lives there you know must live there or come back to it enough that there's actually a memorial set up and there must be some aspect of him dwelling on his own past of their time in that orphanage that allows him to see Laura at the end because like he picks up the amulet, which he specifically said, you can give it back to me when you don't need it anymore. Or when you find Simon and, and he looks up at a door opening and explicitly smiles. Like he sees someone like he would see Laura. And it just, it made me think that in order for a person in this world that they're setting up to see a ghost, you have to kind of almost narratively be one uh, as this echo, this like dwelling in the past in like a literal sense. 
Now, the way I interpreted that, and I, I love the fact that that ending is ambiguous. And again, there's another scene that they cut where um, uh, Carlos talks to Pilar and more explicitly out. says, you know, this is closed now and I'm leaving. And he packs up the car and goes. And I'm glad that's not there. Um, because you can read that scene two ways. Either... He Yes, he sees them, their ghosts, and the finding of the amulet is the setting up of a new treasure hunt for him to follow them, because he's now the one who's, who's close to death and close to crossing over. Or, and this is my personal interpretation of it, again, this harks back to the woman at the, um, the support group. She says she saw a vision of her daughter and realised that she was safe and she didn't have to take on suffering on her behalf that's where i think carlos is at that point mm. that he's he's not seeing them i was going to say he's not seeing their ghosts but the memory of them is a form of their ghosts but they're not there to take him with them he is saying goodbye to them and and seeing them and and knowing that it's it's okay for him to um, to leave now, and and I don't think those interpretations are mutually exclusive because what I'm what I'm saying is that the that as far as the narrative of like the film is concerned, like he is coming back to dwell on the past, and that is the act that echo that makes you ghost like and therefore see ghosts because it's just shown again and again, and in the whole like quies un fantasma scene, that's like explicitly what they talk about. Mm. Um, and I love that it's the literal verbiage from the devil's backbone to start out that conversation. Yeah. So that was that was my whole thing is the that cinematically, uh, like through the narrative, Laura was kind of made herself to be more of a ghost for that interpretation and then sees them. Yeah. And also speaking of, of Laura's journey through that, um, she goes through the maiden, the mother and the crone. She's the maiden when she's the child in the orphanage. She's obviously the mother through the bulk of the story. But then as time progresses, she gradually becomes more and more crone-like in appearance. And they did that on purpose. And then clothing herself in what possibly was Benigna's old outfit. Um, and, um, and, you know, feeding them, the uh, making all the, the blackberries and everything, which Benigna did for them is very crone-like behavior, what Benigna did. Yeah, I, I think it's explicitly Benigna's uh, outfit because she sets up that room to be just like she sees in the film, ah, in the footage. Yeah, when they, when they actually died. And I, I just thought, you know, when she goes into the, um, uh, the coal house yeah. and finds the sacks, as she was climbing into the oven, it hit me. <laughs> This is Gretel being tricked to go, <laughs> uh, the witch being tricked to go into the oven by Gretel. So she is a literal crone at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned the Mother Maiden crone because I feel like it's been a good three or four podcasts since we've talked <laughs> since about we that. brought it up, yeah. Well, <laughs> believe me, I've been looking for them. <laughs> um, oh, but can, since, since you mentioned the coal shed thing, can we just sit on that moment of how, like, of all the scenes in this film that made me the most uncomfortable. Her discovering the cremains in those sacks was what did it for me. Like I was so uncomfortable in that scene. I think that's when I actually was like, when she's like crying and, and like actually smears the ashes, like over a side of her face. I'm like, I think this is a great opportunity to go get a drink. Like 
I, I'm not made uncomfortable by much, but that scene got to me. Mm, yeah. I think, though, there is, there's a cognitive dissonance that's meant to be there in that scene because you as a viewer and Laura as a character in that moment is going to be feeling a conflict of intense relief that this is not Simon and the sudden realisation of who it is. Yeah, because there's all of these little artefacts that you know have been deliberately signified uh, with her friends. They're almost your uh, totemic artefacts that you've been spotting with uh, throughout the Del Toro films, uh, uh, Lauren. The, uh, the, the leg brace uh, goes with Martin, I think. Mm. The, uh, the, the headgear goes with uh, Guillermo. Isn't there like a f- scrap of fabric that actually had one of their names on it too? Yes, yes, there is. It's a, it's a name tag for the dress, just to leave you in no doubt as to as to who it is. Mm. And uh, can you think of any other uh, totemic items throughout the film that they that they have? Because there's, as far as I can tell, there's loads, almost so many that it doesn't count. Yeah, I was going to say I feel like it's almost so many it doesn't count, but that's mainly because I wasn't looking for them mainly because uh, Guillermo was just a producer, although he was like on set and did help them make this quite extensively, it sounds like, Um, and apparently was tapped to produce the remake that they were going to do, which... Thank Christ they haven't. Like, I, I honestly don't think you could improve on this film. And we have a history of making not particularly fantastic American remakes of uh, foreign language films, specifically uh, horrors that reflect the fears of that culture. And when you take those fears and transpose them against American fears, it makes them generic. And then also there's a certain amount of like cinematic language that goes into every American horror film yeah. that I feel would just destroy so much of the tension set set in this kind of script. Um, but yeah, I don't think I, – I feel like the there isn't that explicit characterization totemic object mainly because it wasn't Guillermo just at the helm. He was just kind of around and you can see his fingerprints on a lot of this. Um, but, but I think you really nailed it that those different objects related to their uh, special needs mm. are played very much for that purpose so we can, like, identify them. Uh, Alethea, um obviously is, is identified by her cloudy eyes. Mm. So, uh, um, But she's almost the most advanced of them. She's the one who can tell that it's Laura at the end. The rest of them are... Uh, hampered by their uh, uh, inability to see beyond the older woman. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I mean, that's a, a callback to the first lost boy that recognises um, Peter? Peter in Hook, isn't it? <laughs> is it? It is you. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that classic Hook. Well, he's going to have seen it, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting watching Bayona um, uh, next to Del Toro. It, there's one little interview bit. It, it kind of, it, like, uh, Del Toro is, you defined it, Sharon, as an introvert who's really good at recharging. Holds as in, a charge very well. Holds a charge. Yeah. And then he doesn't get drained by being around other people in the same way. So he can talk quite, you know, enthusiastically for a long time with a lot of other people. And yet he doesn't really have that extrovert 
thing going on where he needs other people to recharge. He thrives in solitude mm. when he his creates. His work recharges him. That's the, the impression mm. that I get. And his One work is not dependent on the feedback he gets from other people. But you put him next to Bayona, and Bayona's this like little, meek, quietly spoken guy. It's, it's amazing that Bayona is able to uh, produce uh, something of such magnificence uh, I, I can only imagine that because I've never actually got to see him directly work in any of the behind the scenes stuff that he's just very good at drawing it out of people just to go back briefly to um, the concept of American remakes of horror movies one thing that I think would probably have been lost with a, a, a remake particularly a Hollywood remake mm-hmm. um, would be the naturalness of the maternal relationship in this and the 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 maternal character that Belen Rueda portrays Laura with and it reminded me an awful lot of um, Amelia in The Babadook yeah It's a sense of authenticity about who they are and how they engage in that relationship, which I cannot think of an example in a Hollywood movie that works quite the same way. Yeah, I agree. And I was definitely getting a lot of flashes of the Babadook while I was watching this. There's a lot of thematic parallels. The closest I can think of is actually... um Sigourney Weaver and Aliens that that's connecting with a child who isn't her own but uh, she comes through that that sense of the mother who will not be stopped Mm. but that has there's a there's a hyper reality to that Mm. Uh, and and I guess it should be said as well that Sigourney Weaver's character in that is explicitly doing you know masculine coded things to reaffirm her you know power while uh, Laura explicitly does feminine coded things like yeah. her intuition and her empathy to continue her quest and to regain her power yeah. to make dinner to tidy the uh, to make the beds to wash the uh, sheets <laughs> in a sense to to recreate the settings in the hopes that the children would be more comfortable and that she could reconnect with the past in a way that's very um I feel, anyway, more feminine-coded, because she could have just gone for the exorcism, right? She could have just been like, oh, well, just get rid of all these ghosts, and then we're good. Like, let's yeah. immediate, like let's fight Push them. them all away. But there is also something very therapeutic about what she engages in, and it, it made me think of... Um, and Aurora's um, uh, regression put me in mind of this as well. Um, not just actions to make contact with literal ghosts but actions to put one in contact with your own past your own childhood your own memories because you want to re-examine them and work out how to move forward from them Um, and recreating the the time period as well that made me think of um there are some care homes specifically for people who have um, things like Alzheimer's and and, uh, conditions that affect the memory. And they have um, setups where the residents can engage in activities 
from back in the day where they do have clear memories that they can connect with. So they'll have, uh, like for people who were maybe secretaries back in the 40s, they'll have old-style typewriters for them to to sit at and, and type with. And it helps them to engage with the parts of their mind that are still clear to them. And there's something to be said about that being a direct relation to the what is a ghost the reconnecting these echoes of the past like living in the past and the present simultaneously Mm. there's something to be said as well for the the two potential endings that we are presented with when she says to simon just pretend for a moment that these ghosts aren't real that these children are that aren't they aren't real she is effectively saying there i deny you i don't believe in you she is going the way of pilar it is not logical that you exist that i could be communicating with you and in doing that she is presented with cold hard cruel reality it just it it ebbs away the lighting goes and it's we're left with a very very dark cold bluish grimy and lacking in any kind of magic um lighting scheme Mm -hmm. and and we're left with the most terrible thing ever the worst thing ever and that then puts in relief what the idea of the fantasy and the indulging in what could be more out there as an escape from this horrific, inescapable truth. The way I read that as well, um, and it's one of the reasons why every time I watch this film... Data. From the moment that she finds Simone in the bed... I start crying and I can't stop until the end of the film because you can read that as it's her she is fantasising that he is there because she really wants him to be and then when she pushes the other children away that's when she's confronted with the reality of what she's found but to me, that's, that's him. She finds Simon's ghost. He's there already. And then when she tries to bring them both back into the real world, she exercises all of the children from her own perception, including Simon. And that's part of it. They are, he is now one of this group of children. And if she is going to accept him, she has to accept all of them. They come as a package now. And so the, uh, the emotional overlap for that whole scene for me is... In the joy of finding him even if he is dead then realising and the sadness of the loss of having to accept that he's not physical anymore and then 
embracing going over to the other side to be with him brings the joy back again and it's all tied up in the same blend of her emotions that she's she's going to have to have dealt with regarding this child his whole life because she she took him in in the first place knowing there was a, a high likelihood that he was going to die the doctor said that it wasn't enough yeah two kilos so every moment of his life was bonus time absolutely and I suspect that she made that deal with herself back then um, that when he when she eventually did lose him she would not lose him she would go with him The behind the scenes footage described the film as a roller coaster where at the end when you kind of, when you finally come off of it you are shaken you are weak but you're happy that it's that it that it went the way that it did that it ended the way that it did um and as you were talking that is just all that I could think of is that how perfectly they nailed that feeling as so obviously depicted in the way that you went through that. It is the most bittersweet film I've ever seen because, um, especially when you see it repeated times, it's not scary at all. The scary thing is is losing those that you love, but the, the little appearances of the children aren't scary at all. You just feel an overwhelming sadness that they're alone, that they're scared, and it is an exercise in empathy. The bittersweetness is, is, is simply the presenting the audience with the certainty of parting, presenting us as well with something that all of us, I don't care how atheist we are, have thought about at some point in our lives the hope that there might be something more afterwards. The hope that what love you've been able to salvage in life now and possibly what love you've already lost can be reclaimed and revisited and some sense of existence even if it is only an echo Mm. and that speaks to I think a lot of people on a very deep level they can't articulate well I think for for the way I read the horror elements of this, there is only one thing in this film which is genuinely frightening, and that is the unknown. The, the I don't know, I think uh, Benigna killing five children getting away with it's more frightening for me. Not, no, 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 not threatening, scary. Oh, scary. Yeah. No, that's scary to me. Okay. Well, <laughs> in, in that specific 
horror movie type sense for me the the idea of there being something which is unknown and you get the two responses to this represented in Laura and Carlos which is that if when presented with the unknown your choices are you can uh, work to learn about it and therefore understand it that way or you can trust it and trust your instincts on it and understand it that way and all of this is why I find this to be such a perfect companion to the devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth much like the devil's backbone the ghosts in this are children not to be feared but to be pitied and to be helped the main like most of the main horror most of the death is accidental i mean tomas was not killed on purpose the other five were yes but simone was also an accident so it's not even like the mystery isn't who killed simone the mystery is like where did simone go but then the extension of that so it's there's like very specific callbacks to the devil's backbone in the beginning but it ends like pan's labyrinth because in the end the laura much like our protagonist in pan's labyrinth dies to go to a fantasy realm where she can exist in this like better place her neverland if you will Mm. and um it was described uh, that this was like the Peter Pan story, but from the mother's perspective, where all of the children go to Neverland, and she's just left, where did all of the children go, and panicking from there. But in the end of this film, unlike what that would be for the original Peter Pan story, the mother goes to Neverland with them, which is so reflective of Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Peter Pan's Labyrinth, anyone? I was just thinking that, and I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to ruin the mood that I thought was being established. Okay, fine. It's fine. We are the rude mood, the rude mood ruiners. (laughs) (laughs) But but no, seriously, I feel like thematically there's so much going through the film that is Devil's Backbone, but that ending is pure Pan's Labyrinth. Even down to the fact that when Simon's feet lower to the ground and he's, it's just as she's woken up and we realize, oh no, he was alive then he was dead now he's alive again and he asks her if he can wake up his little sneakers drop to the ground and he does the foot twitching from ophelia in pan's labyrinth it's the same kind of testing your feet on the new soil movement sharon noticed that all credit to you yeah and the and and the the moment when reality creeps in in thomas's little house is that blending of the fantasy world and reality, much like in Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. So this, uh, like you mentioned at the beginning, The Devil's Backbone is a gothic ghost story from a boy perspective. Pan's Labyrinth is a gothic fairy tale from a girl's perspective. This is both of those from a mother's perspective. Mm. Mm. There's also slightly more crude parallels with Poltergeist, the uh, the whole of that film. The middle two acts are Carol Ann being taken away to then be uh, um, like striven for to be brought back by her, both her parents. 
and uh, the there's obvious parallels between um, Zelda Rubenstein in that and uh, Aurora in this. And uh, there's also it felt like the flip side of the others. Mm. Now I don't want to spoil the others, folks, but if you haven't yet seen the others. See the others. See the others. Um, maybe spin on for one minute uh, if if you don't want to know anything about the others. Ready? Okay. Uh, the Lauren, others. Lauren, I assume you have seen the others. Yeah, don't worry about okay. it. Oh. <laughs> the others is uh, from the point of view of ghosts being very much perturbed by the living now far forward in time, moving into their house, and they only see what they want to see and it's that that sense of disorientation that your house has been invaded and it's extremely unnerving but you know you could do a second version of the orphanage entirely from the point of view of the kids Mm. yeah and the um this features prominently in that as well the expression of how the subconscious, which effectively is all ghosts are, they are pure consciousness, they have no physical form, it perceives all time frames, all emotional states, all um, levels of reality as if they're the same. And that keys into that whole the the reality for the children is always here and now and that's one of the reasons that they can't understand why how this can be Laura hmm. which goes directly back to the um the medium scene where she they specifically say that she, like she is combining the present and the past in order to see like those who walk between in a sense hmm. and and, and like we were talking about the remake, my goodness, if they remade this in like an American horror style, that medium scene with Aurora would not, there's no way they'd be able to make that in American cinema, it, like anywhere near as good. That was my favorite scene in the whole film and just works as such an amazing thesis for what is going on and like the greater themes that I I was so, as I was watching the film, I couldn't. I was like, well, okay, obviously she's going to need to use that doll to start a treasure hunt to find Simone. So now we're six months away and like it's kind of just like the pacing kind of slows down and oh, that woman just got hit by a bus. Okay, that's the thing that just happened like out of the blue. So I was kind of like it was losing me a little bit because the pacing was like real, real weird compared to what I was expecting or what I'm used to. But then that scene hit and I was like, oh, yeah. I'm back on. Let's do this. Rather than trying to uh, remake it for American markets, I wish they would do uh, what something far simpler and way more effective. Recruit uh, Bayona himself and the screenwriter of The Orphanage, uh, Sergio G. Sanchez, and get them to make an American supernatural-tinged psychological thriller with overtones of gothic romance. In the few weeks between recording this episode and releasing it, I went to see The Secret of Marabone, produced by Bayona, written and directed by Sergio Sanchez, and it's exactly what I wanted. We'll probably be doing a show on it soon. 
You know, Bayona's just proved that he can uh, make uh, Colin Trevorrow's script seem less stupid than it actually is for uh, Jurassic World 2. It's getting the financial investment, though, uh, from a production company that won't interfere. Yeah. That won't yeah. say you have to sell this in this particular way. And on that note, I actually read part of an interview somewhere where Guillermo was talking about doing the remake and where they had originally it was going to be just like an Americanized remake of the film. But apparently the script that Guillermo wanted to them to go with was actually an earlier version of the script from the orphanage, which was like more horror somehow, but he felt would make like a good like it was going to be a remake, but not an explicit remake, more like a companion, uh, if if you'll excuse the video games. More, more like the Resident Evil remake was to the first Resident Evil, how it's like a lot of the same also themes way and a lot of the same settings. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, but... So almost uh, perfect then in terms of bringing us that game, especially when it was HD super remastered for Xbox and PS4. I was just using that to highlight the, the idea of taking something that was already perfect and then providing a different version of that that some people can think is more perfect, but... Only in I, the orphanage. No one said, hope this is not Chris's blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at, at no point did she almost become a Laura Sandwich, so... <laughs> That's points off. Yes, but, but you, you see what I mean. talk about briefly is the reflections of specifically um there's there's two in particular the what kicks off the treasure hunts each time is a small act of um aggression or destruction which is very personally significant so the first one um when simon uh is looking for the coins and they end up in the, the drawer with his documents, mm. um, they've they've had a fight. And that this you get the sense that this is rare for them. Um, and the second one, when uh, Laura is led off on her own treasure hunt, um, it's the window smashing when yeah. she's, she's trying to call them. And it's almost like this is how they get her attention and say, yes, we are definitely here, there. Have something very visual um, that tells you that there's definitely something going on here. And it triggers off these... Again, it's almost like this metaphor for um, for self-exploration and, um, and looking within yourself for the answers to things that have hidden from you for a long, long time. And 
there's also the reflection of the the way the mediums and particularly Aurora go into their trance state in order to to find out what's happened in the house and Laura almost ends up doing that accidentally through sheer force of exhaustion and medication and um, and distress and anguish that she's going through by the end. Um, and she's she's done all this work to set the house up all by herself. And Beninia warned her, she said, if you're going to run this house, it's going to be a lot of work, you're going to need a lot of people. But she does this all on her own. It made me think of her as shaman. And going into a a state of trance in order to be able to make those connections and pull those things together, but not having an anchor to keep her in the real world because she sent Carlos away. And that's what he was for her, was her anchor to reality. And she wants to let go of that in order to be able to fully embrace this ghost world. And and it makes a lot of sense with the the sleeping pills because Aurora specifically is put into a hypnotic state uh, thanks to the other supernatural investigator over the microphone. Um, and to achieve that, Laura ends up taking the sleeping pills to have a – I mean, whether that was her intent or not, that's what happened, is that hypnotic effect is definitely an aspect of that. There's a compassion threaded throughout this which i think would be lost in a uh, western remake because we tend to like our ghosts malevolent and scary and we want them to rush at us and uh to be accompanied by a sting uh and there's a a, a version of this uh, like we watched um we watched the awakening yesterday which is on netflix right now it's rebecca hall and it was billed as a very british uh ghost story and there's some like for me the best ghost stories are about uncovering something tragic in the past that has been hidden and needs to be uncovered and for there to be a relief at the end when it has been uncovered and there is a more of a proclivity these days possibly due to j horror for yeah you can uncover it but it doesn't matter the end of the ring is perfect for expressing this. Yeah, well done. You uncovered the past. You recovered the body that you understood the murder. Fuck you. I'm still going to kill you. And the grudge did the same. Fuck you. I'm still going to kill you. Oh, you got to work. Fuck you. I'm still going to kill you. Oh, you're on the bus. Fuck you. I'm still going to kill you. The woman in black is pretty much the same story as the orphanage. Only at the end, when the mother is reunited with her child, rather than going, okay, we can go now. She's like, fuck you, I hate everything still, fuck you! And that, to me, is just a horrible ending. Mm. (laughs) Because what are we supposed to learn from that? What are we supposed to get from that? Did you really have to salt the earth so nothing would ever grow there? Yeah. The Woman in Black Remains may be the scariest film for me, even though it's only a PG-13, because of just this sense of oppressiveness about it. And it actually does have kind of a a bittersweet ending, but it's in spite of the woman in black herself, not because of it. (sighs) (laughs) 
<laughs> God. You seem really on edge as we're going through this. It's 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 a it's a parent's nightmare to 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 watch this play out. On that note, I, I mean, this is kind of a weird thing. I I am of course not a parent, but well, not to humans, I guess. I have my cat children, and my one cat's name is Thomas, and I always call him Tomas just because it's fun to say. And then as we're going through this, and I'm like, oh, the little creepy ghost kid's name is Tomas. And I'm like, and I'm like grabbing my cat. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like snuggling him. And yeah. So even I had in my flinty, shriveled heart uh, felt some of that too. I'm not suggesting for a moment, and I know you weren't implying that, uh, and I don't think anyone at home would trust me to do this either, that well, you don't understand love until you're a parent. That's absolute cod shit. You can, you, can, you can possess that kind of deep, deep love for a dog or cat. It just requires something that can love you back. Uh, well, this, man, you might cut this out, I don't know. But um, So I watched this film immediately following coming out to my parents over the phone that yesterday morning. And my mother, who is not the most subtle of individuals, said, well, I'm offended because you can't know what it's like to be a woman until you have a period for 30 years and bear a child. And I'm like, "Okay, let me explain all the ways you're wrong. (laughs) And that still has like I was still thinking about that to a certain extent um, about like validation and that kind of experience. And so I don't know it may not be relevant and like I said might be suitable to cut out but I feel like that's at least information that you two would find interesting I'm so sorry I'm very sorry that you had to go through that shit it's 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 alright my dad called me back immediately after to be like hey I don't give a shit what you do I think you're still awesome I figured you were going through something wrong let me know how I can help I don't know what your mother said and I'm like that's fair that's fair but because my dad's a pretty cool guy, but my but the fact that my mom said that, and I'm like, I know you kind of vaguely mean well, but like, wow, am I offended? <laughs> like, I don't know. It was I don't just, think you thought this through, Lauren. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> that was the email I got from one of my oldest friends, and that was a fun conversation. Anyway, folks, um, <laughs> folks at home listening, I don't think you thought this through. Is not what any of your friends or children or parents or brothers or sisters want to hear from you when they come out to you. They want to hear Lauren? Uh, They just want to hear either okay, I'll support you any way you can, or yeah, I kind of anticipated that like nothing changes, you're still my child or you're still my friend. What you shouldn't do is say, are you sure about this? Let me write a three-page treatise in an email psychoanalyzing all of the reasons why you might be doing this. Hmm. I, I was going to say precisely that, just like it doesn't I, – I, well, it's what I said when when you said it. I was like, all right. Yeah. So what would you like to be called now? Oh, still Lauren, okay. Yeah, th- that's it. Oh, pronoun change? Cool. Let's go with that. My sister had my favorite one where – well, you were always more of a girl than me anyway. <laughs> so saying something flip and humorous probably probably helps as long as it's not really off color. Mm. Yeah. Well, 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 of course. I mean, just the act of talking to somebody about that ends up being so full of tension. Like you 
like even leading up to it, knowing that the person is probably going to be okay with it, there's still always that chance. And then like being vulnerable in that moment, especially if it's to your parents, someone you are societally supposed to be able to implicitly trust, but for someone like me knows that they can't. And then saying, these are the last two people on the planet for me to come out to, and I need to just do this, knowing that it was going to be both unpredictable and probably uncomfortable to go through. Um, Yeah. So, like, any kind of flippant – like, making a joke of it or, like, relieving that tension is a great tactic. (laughs) Okay, folks. You're welcome for, for like – Honestly, I don't know if, uh, Lauren, you may or may not know this, um, whether there are people who do YouTube videos that are like, okay, mom, dad, I don't know how to say this, so I'm going to play this video. It pretty much expresses my thoughts. I mean, there are fucking greetings cards, a million trillion greetings cards that say happy birthday in fun ways. Why aren't there YouTube videos that say, mom, dad, I'm gay? Just want to say that on behalf of the poor, the poor person who's put this video on and can't quite put it into words. We got your back, buddy. That would be great, but knowing uh, YouTube from the last week or so, they would probably put commercials that are for anti-LGBT things in front of any of the ones yeah. that weren't for Is your son or daughter gay? Well, you can get them rehabilitated <laughs> in my special electrocution oh. camp. Oh. Sorry to make flip jokes oh. about this, folks. I find these people... Well, I, I, I found a new word the other day, thinking hard, about people who behave in such a subhuman manner, so lacking in humanity, that they kind of don't qualify as people anymore. I want to seed this word and see if it turns up on Twitter. Creeple. Creeple. Just people I- who are creeps and just don't aren't really human. Not, not fully. Like, you know, they could be. Creeple can always redeem themselves. Let's give them that. But they're <laughs> acting like creeple. Should we do that? It's like a, a, a notch above sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just imagine a more anthropomorphic creeper from Minecraft. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you upset them enough, they explode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Another word I've been using recently to describe creeple is hollow men. That's just laden down with meaning. Feel free to use that one yourself. Okay, anyway, so we've gone sorry far for the diversion. The no, no, no. no. I, I'm leaving all things. that in because it will actually help. People who are struggling okay with their with own. That, if, if you're, yeah, okay. if you're okay with that, of course, I'm. I'm perfectly okay with it. And it, and it was very informative to my viewing of the film. Hmm. I feel because hmm. you know I was thinking myself a lot along a lot of those lines of like, okay, about like motherhood and and validation along those lines, and um, you know, maybe one of the reasons why Laura was considered like a special child is because she lacked the equipment or something i mean it's always it's it's possible that the reason she adopted simone was because she herself couldn't have a child of her own like biologically and you know the 70s maybe that would have been enough to land somebody in like that special needs population and given my life that's something that i had to think about and i was and it was kind of mulling over as i snuggled my kitty cat thomas mm. but that who you now forced to wear a sack on his head oh this is cruel lauren <laughs> that, that's what the best horror does it makes you bring your own stuff yeah, absolutely. And it lets you look at the horror through the lens of your own experience in a way that, like, 
both informs on the story at large and complements it. Mm, There was another deleted scene where uh, just before she found Simone in Thomas's little house, you know, there's that flash of Thomas standing behind her. She was supposed to turn around and Thomas is there and she slowly takes his mask off and he sort of hides his face from her and is ashamed. But then it becomes apparent that he's not malevolent there. And then he points to where Simone is and then we go and find Simone. I'm again very pleased they took that out because they convey that he's totally harmless after she passes through the veil anyway. But also because it's such a strong moment that you're too busy feeling sorry for poor Tomas, this kid who, if on your first try, you might have actually been kind of scared by, and you can't then re-engage with Simone and uh, Laura at the crucial moment. Mm. So I'm very glad they took that out. Yeah, it it dissipates your uh, perspective. Yeah. And for the record, I did go back and watch the trailer at the very start while you were going through your monologue, and they use those scenes in the trailers to drum up Tomas as this malevolent force. Mm-hmm. And again, boy, do trailers get things wrong for horror films. Yeah, well, I think you can't. Well, how would you? How, how would you, would you say this film might appear frightening, but it's actually deeply, deeply bittersweet? Come sad. on, meet some really lovely dead kids. Come, yeah, come on. Like the, these children are adorable, and you'll cry a lot. Mm. The orphanage. But, <laughs> well, but they, they they could have tried to play up more of the the mystery aspect, but they instead play shots from pretty much every supernatural moment of the film, including ending the trailer on her descending into the basement room where it's kind of like, okay, like doesn't that kind of give something away? Yes, yes, it really does. Yeah, so oh, and it it really plays up the whole thing of like, you know, these ghosts are going to steal your child and you've got to play their games to get her back and yeah, it's really weird. So there's one last thing I want to uh, just mention because we this is the first thing we talked about, but I just kind of want to get it put to bed. It might not even end up in the final version. The human organized ghost assisted treasure hunts. So are we are we just saying that um, that the ghosts told Thomas where to find the things because it seems like he jumps from clue to clue to clue. It seemingly knowing exactly where they are he looks at the thimble and immediately goes the sewing kit and just goes straight there he definitely set that one up yeah right he's read the files he's already absorbed what's in them and freaked out about them because he he veers from being happy about the coins to just slamming them down and, and shouting at her mm. that's i think what hit me the hardest the, the you know this these two times of watching it how scared this child was how uh, a sense of you need to prove to me that you really love me that you really care about me because i feel like i've been lied to here and 
for so many years that I don't even know what's what anymore. So he sets this test for his mother that she ultimately fails badly, but she persists and persists and persists. And it, it does have a sense of reward at the end because you get that she is as tenacious as he would dream of her being in a way that most people couldn't keep up. It's, it is superhuman levels of holding on and f- fixating to the point where she's what most people would consider to be coming unglued at the end. Mm. Well, that, I think, is that he has that expectation of her. He had to be a certain level of young for that to work because there there comes an age where it becomes unreasonable to have that level of expectation from other people particularly in adults to have that need for someone to prove to you how much they love you is indicative of some kind of abandonment trauma or something like that but in Simon it seems reasonable because he's so little because he's so innocent and so naive until this truth, this secret is placed in front of him. Lauren, I was going to ask you one more thing. You said the, uh, that The Devil's Backbone is from the perspective of a boy. It's a, ghost, a boy's ghost story. That Pan's Labyrinth is a girl's uh, fantasy and that this is a mother's fantasy ghost story. I was trying to think of an equivalent father ghost story, potentially with fantasy elements creeping in there, or at least a a gothic story about a father, and there Mm -hmm. really aren't many. I I, I thought of uh, The Changeling, the George C. Scott film, which is of a bereaved father uh, encountering the ghost of a, a boy in the new house that he's moved into. But he's not really particularly paternal. It is a case he wants to solve, but it's a dissatisfying ending because they do that thing where they they accomplish the, the mystery is all played out by the end of Act 2. And then for Act 3, it's just a fireworks show. I've, I've said this before. If you keep the mystery to the last but one beat... You can have a cl- uh, you can stick the landing as well as the orphanage does here. That fireworks show, when mishandled, can be death to ghost stories. There is something to be said for the elegance of pulling off a ghost story that leaves you feeling melancholy, still a little bit frightened and uncertain, but going home thinking, as opposed to trying to jump scare the hell out of you by just ramping it up to eleven. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but the entity is much like that as well. It's got this really creeping, oppressive atmosphere the whole way through, and then it just blows up like the Godfather at the end. The always considered fantastic Insidious is really pretty good most of the way through, and then it goes way overboard. And then the second one leans so hard on the sounds, it's impossible to take seriously. It becomes a, a, a comedy horror that makes you laugh by going, you're nervous, aren't you? Brang! <laughs> I wonder if part of that is because the what a horror movie is about, what it's exploring, whether it be in fairy tale form or ghost story or whatever, it is exploring a form of helplessness. 
And for the most part, certainly in Hollywood-type movies, the way that adult male helplessness is presented and dealt with is the my dead family trope. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's the other way around. It's not about the it. ghosts. It's it's I've got to avenge these by killing the living. Yeah. The male yeah. role in horror from that perspective is the action movie. Yeah. It's the come I, back and kick the ass of whatever it is that made you feel helpless. I was going to say that I think the what are like what cinema makes that's like the male equivalent, the masculine equivalent is the Taken franchise. Mm. Oh god. Because it was I think it's important to point out that the, these three films are foreign films. They're not American cinema specifically and so they have a different language and they're allowed like a different space. Um there is a there's a quote from Guillermo I think that said uh where American films have all of the money but none of the freedom, foreign films have all of the freedom but none of the money. <laughs> uh, and whenever we were talking about this uh, earlier offline, as it were, um, I, I pointed out, I'm like, well, Guillermo hasn't made the film yet that would be from the father's perspective. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that our society, or at least cinematically, the cinematic society, if you will, like the language that we're used to from film – allows for this kind of expression or experience because you like you were saying helplessness isn't a masculine trait in cinema neither is empathy anything that's related to emotions and horror is all about empathy and that's why you get things like you know taken or what was that terrible one with bruce willis that just came out that was a revenge flick it was a remake of death wish something else has just occurred to me as well and I'm not going to say that this is a universal experience by any means, but often the father role in a horror story is the antagonist, the oppressor. is the monster. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. The, and, and because if you look at, at where domestic violence normally originates, usually originates, it's it, going to be in that position. Yes, I was going to say John Sutherland that. in Don't Look Now, but Julie Christie is so important in that. Mm. But but that is a really good example of a horror film where he is being presented as helpless. So this begs a question. Could you see a remake of The Orphanage with the main characters reversed in gender? Yes, where Mark was... Ruffalo playing Larry, Leroy. <laughs> well, well, just the idea of the, the father being the one who is like, really like affectionate towards the kids originally from the orphanage and the the mother is much more like distant that like what what's the there's a trope name for it like an iron maiden or something like that where she's like you know much more like a logical and could like would that to if you did that would that actually make it what we're talking about or would that just be this film Again, the reason I said Mark Ruffalo is because there aren't many films with male grieving that's nonviolent. Ghost is a perfect example of a film where uh, Molly is left behind to grieve. And you could reverse that film and have Molly be the ghost and, and Sam be the one who's grieving, especially since he was emotionally closed off or at least couldn't say I love you. Like you could play ghost gender flipped relatively easily. Mark Ruffalo is in a film called Just Like Heaven, which is nowhere near as good as Ghost, but he is grieving. And that's the thing, though, is 
it would be the same film and cinematically it would still be a feminine story because yeah. cinema has a very specific language related to gendered expression because he would be coded female in how he deals with this this grief by not going and trying to kill mm. that like john wick is a perfect example of like <laughs> he's grieving his wife who has died of something he can't kill and then some bastards come along and give him someone to kill mm-hmm. yeah i think we, I can see this coming about someday. Um, horror movies that explore uh, masculine responses to helplessness and grieving and loss and, and anguish. I think we need a more expansive cinematic language to talk about uh, masculine dealing with emotions that aren't anger. Absolutely. I mean, cinema narratively, if you... You know, our culture has a very specific idea of what being masculine means, and that is supposed to be if you are feeling out of control, it is your duty as a masculine individual to regain that control, usually through force. And that's toxic. I'll just say it. That's kind of what, what we're dancing around. And that concept feeds back into the media that is made, which then reinforms the culture around it. Yeah. So it's, it's just this perpetual motion machine. And until we break the language or do something, because if we made one of these gender flip films that we're talking about, they would be coded female and they probably wouldn't do very well. I mean, the film that you mentioned with Mark Ruffalo, I've never heard of. Just like and, it's it's it seems like a romantic comedy film because it's got Reese Witherspoon and she's sort of smiling on the front cover. So, yeah. But but that's kind of what I mean. Like it maybe I, I don't know maybe that was a blockbuster and I've just never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. But it made one hundred and two point eight million. It cost fifty eight million, so it's got less of a, a double this money profit than uh, the orphanage. But mm. it's effectively a ghost story. Uh, Reese Witherspoon communicates with this grieving widower. Mm. Hmm. So, um, so maybe there is some precedent, but until that that language changes in a way that more people like, because we would almost need to have a film or a set of films change the language in such a way that the people who see them that it resonates with go on to write new films, and that's the only way we're going to change how this like narrative works, how this Absolutely. language works. Absolutely. And I think part of, I mean, one essential element to it is that there is a perception that being helpless, which does, is not a word that carries a value judgment with it, is the same thing as being weak, which definitely carries a value judgment with it. And mm-hmm. men can't be seen as weak. There's a top 25 best horror movie dads. I won't bore you with the first 23. Number two is Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance in The Shining. Yeah, he's a fucking bang up job of a dad. Well, number one is Satan from Rosemary's Baby. Oh my God. Brilliant. You made two errors there. (laughs) (laughs) To play the devil's advocate. (laughs) Oh, very good. Actually, devil's advocate. He was a better dad in that. (laughs) We're coming out, son. Uh, <coughs> that's that's awesome. <laughs> number one dad in horror film, Satan. Okay, that's number twenty one is Robert Carlyle. In twenty eight weeks later, a man who ran like a chicken when his wife was in danger from fast zombies. Number twenty one. Who the fuck is number twenty six? Who didn't make the list? Ralph Innocent <laughs> in The Witch is number twenty four. Get fucked. This list. Oh. What the hell? That yeah. How about twenty five worst horror movie dads? 
Well, so think about the what we were talking about earlier, though. Most of these dads that we're talking about here are the antagonists of those films Bingo. for the most part. Certainly and Satan that, is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Satan always has a bad rap, but again, cinema narrative language. But, um, but yeah, they're all the antagonists. It's like, oh, that's what makes them the best because in a horror film, that is the male's role. Even the way that that, that article you found is codifying what best male like lead, what best father figure in horror is, and they're all antagonists. Mm. That that's what best is. Oh, it's not exactly horror, uh, but Coraline's dad. Making up a song about Coraline. Mm. Real dad or other dad? Both. No, they're the same guy. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But again, he's um, he's rendered impotent mm. uh, in in the face of a domineering mother on either side. And that's of the, door. the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you if you present a father uh, a father figure even doesn't have to be a literal Mm. dad um who expresses helplessness and therefore is interpreted as weak then they're going to be overridden by well here's the thing like if the father if the father's married and the mother isn't feeling it as much you're going to be spending half the movie going why isn't that woman feeling more than the dad something's wrong here Mm. Yeah, because that's how we code it. The mum mm. is supposed to be the one who's totally devoted to the child and gives their all to the the See, I love Poltergeist because Craig T. Nelson's obviously freaking out in a very logical way about Carol Ann, who he believes has just sort of disappeared, and it's the mother who believe, is willing to believe Zelda Rubenstein uh, um, much earlier and uh, that they, they play the two off against each other. That's an excellent pairing. I think we all want to see movies where both parents are kind of in it and there's conflict between them, but they're ultimately unified. Mm, You know, I was just thinking that because a great film that is like a parental, like a more of a holistic family experience is Kubo where like the, 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 the father figure is actually like not coded anywhere near the same way that, like cinema narrative language would suggest, Mm. uh, but it ends up being like a really strong character piece with those roles being very explicit and reinforced. Mm. And now that you mentioned Charlize Theron, I'm thinking of Mad Max Fury Road, where all the the wives are hanging back going, mommy and daddy are fighting again. Mm. Literally with iron bars. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep hitting each other. But that, that sense of balance, I think, is, is how you, rectify that imbalance that's there at the moment and the more we are allowed to explore cinematically the paternal and uh, male experience of um, helplessness in the face of having to care for a child the more we will then be allowed to explore maternal ambivalence I think you could feasibly do it if it was Chris Evans and McKenna Grace from Gifted, anyone who's seen Gifted uh, will know what an incredibly charming little girl this uh, is and how incredibly um, well they played off each other. If he was her daughter, but if the female part of that adult couple was not her natural mother, we could then forgive her for caring more about Chris Evans' well-being than for the missing child. Like, if she'd sort of come in more recently. So there was still that, they were there together, but there's that conflict between them where she can't claw Chris Evans back from the edge. Mm. 
But that would be the only version of events that people would accept in that scenario. It's and this is the thing, isn't it? It's how do we find that bridge? Because ultimately, what we, the ideal is to be in a situation where we don't need to forgive that, mm. where that's that's her perception and that's how she responds, and that's fine, that's okay. And they do play Carlos in this as straight as they can, and it is a sympathetic stance he takes. Mm. He just wants. He wants them to be able to get through this and to stay together. Yeah. And he is, to an extent, a nurturer. That's the thing. He is very supportive. He is very encouraging uh, of Laura and of her, uh, her what she wants to do. It's just that his way of being supportive is generally to set things in motion and then step back. Hmm. And, and his thing is he wants Laura to get over it. He wants Laura to move on. Well, get and over it sounds a little bit too dismissive that, in a kind of like get. Yeah, that, in that's the harsh. largest sense of the word. It's just in the film. He he wants he very explicitly wants them both to be able to move past it. Get over it is definitely a harsh way to put that. But uh, it's he's definitely he's very nurturing. But it's almost like at least in the way that he's depicted, he kind of reaches the end of his patience to a certain extent. He's like, look, we can't be here anymore this isn't healthy for you mm. and laura is just not willing to let it go and i mean think about this movie from his perspective where it's like oh god my wife's going like going a little crazy our adopted son is missing again these uh, are kind of flip versions of the reality but yeah well, but son it, is missing he's like shrugging on the front cover going where's my son well, but he, he never really has, like, a big emotional breakdown moment because he always has to be the stronger one for Lara. Mm. And and then think about the end of this from Carlos's perspective. Okay, wife, you know, we have to leave, but you want two days to just put your grief to rest. I will give you those two days. Oh, you overdosed on sleeping pills and killed yourself in those two days. Wow. This one's like, on me. Yeah, like, that's that... Oh, just exploring that or thinking about the exploration of that but is But specifically, rough. there is reasoning behind it because they would have found her with Simone's body. They would have found the uncovered room. They would have pieced it all together and it would have made sense that she did what she did. There is a human version of events and a spiritual version of events and both of them have a strength and a strong hand in this. But the we get to see the spiritual version and we get to understand the catharsis at the end of it where she gets to be reunited with not just her friends but also her son and she gets to take on the the maternal role to essentially like special needs orphans which was all she wanted to do in the whole film but the other side of that the more realistic side is just that horrible like grief and the idea of okay she found the body found that it was an accident and then in her grief and in that moment moment of passion killed herself like that's still really dark and really hard i think one of the most significant uh, emotional moments for carlos is in that scene at the car where she's saying goodbye and she's got him to agree to just give her these two days the way i read that when he gets into that car he knows he's never going to see her again I, I think that's definitely the way that it's shot I think that, like, we get the idea that he's never going to see her again. I'm, I'm not as sure if like the character necessarily 
does. But like in that moment, we know as the audience, oh, well, this is definitely going to go a very specific way. I think um, his his instinct may tell him that he's never going to see her again. His rational side may be giving him a completely different message. Which actually leans in really well to what we were talking about much, much earlier about the very end where Carlos kind of he gets that closure through like a more supernatural means most likely well not most likely literally because the amulet itself had to have been moved there for him to find by the ghost so that in fact uh, then does suggest that what at least one of those treasure hunts was spiritually motivated yeah well she uh, the the last thing laura does before she dies is to pull the necklace off and drop it to the floor the question is how does it then get wedged to the floorboard Mm. There is so much packed into it in, in terms of visual information that it t- it took me watching it all the way through while making notes and then watching it again while not making notes, then pausing to make additional notes just to make sure of the exact confluence of events. The fact that it's in Spanish and you have to uh, read every single word as it comes up uh, and that, that so much information is subtly packed into a very efficient script uh, it, it, it makes it challenging as a puzzle, but you never feel that it's cheating you, really, uh, and you never feel that it is running so fast you can't keep up. It's very clear about itself. And just the more detail you pick up on rewatches, the the, the more rich it feels as an experience. And one mm-hmm. of their greatest challenges was... Um, not making the house gaunt and particularly overly scary, like an unpleasant haunted house, because with what they're leaving you on, you have to be kind of happy that they're there forever. And if it's like Crimson Peak is not a place you want to stay, it's a place you want to visit and then get the hell out of. Whereas here you can see that if you're of a certain disposition, actually, yeah, it would be a pretty good place to spend eternity. There is a an innocence threaded throughout, which as soon as you, un- you just remove all of the, uh, the, the fear and superstition is, is laid very cleanly and barely. can now be downloaded in entirety from the New Century Multiverse podcast feed, very much inspired by Del Toro's works, including The Orphanage. This is the perfect doorway to an expansive world. And they looked. They went up by the stream. They climbed the tallest hill. They went back down in the other direction. They strayed very far over towards the eastern edge of the forest to the site of an old, dilapidated farmhouse. The Stacys had lived there up until a few years ago, but Cleo had told the children they had moved away. Yet here the farm stood, unused and empty. The rain had begun to spatter down hard now. Both the girls were uncomfortably wet. Rebecca realised she suddenly had three choices. Search the farm, go back through the forest, or return to the house for reinforcements. She was momentarily pinned to the spot. Tim! She shouted. We have to go now, it's raining! Tim! Timothy! Timothy! 
shouted Amanda, as helpfully as she could. They listened. There was no sound from the farmhouse. As if in answer, the rain intensified, accompanied by a roll of thunder. Rebecca thought quickly. This weather meant the grown-ups would already be prompted to search for them outside, so that eliminated the need for the third option. If Timothy was somewhere in the farm, there was a chance he would be in the house, which was more sheltered than the forest, despite big holes in the thatched roof. He might cut himself on all of those sharp things. Rebecca bolted back towards the forest. If he was in the farmhouse, he might be safe. If he went back home, he would definitely be safe. If he did neither of those things, he would be in the forest, hiding, congratulating himself upon his success. Amanda gave chase as they slipped and scurried through the mud. Rebecca could no longer hear over the percussive din of the shower, and water kept getting in her eyes so she would have to rely on instinct. He was not in any of the spots she had found him on previous occasions. She whirled on Amanda. Do you know where he might be? I... no. We should have found him. Wait, wait, think. You said you'd chosen a place we'd seen today. And I did. We walked past the hornbeam on the way up. But Timothy might have taken that to his advantage and gone somewhere we definitely hadn't already walked. We've wasted our time going over old ground. Rebecca shouted. She ignored the fact that they had trekked all the way over to the Stacy farm and chastised herself bitterly as they reached the babbling stream in the western side of the forest. Its waters now dark, reflecting the angry clouds above. She turned to Amanda. You have to get back. Get help. Get everyone to look for him. I'll stay out here. You have to come back too, though. Please don't get lost. Without a word, Rebecca turned back and crossed the stream, not caring a jot for how the cold water splashed up over her calves. Tim! You've won every game of hide-and-seek from now on until forever. Just please come out. The woods around her said nothing. She craned her head into hollows and pits, staring into treetops, spun around straining her ears for his voice. She heard her father and Uncle Matthew in the distance, calling for Tim and for her. She did not answer. She would not until she found him. Let Them Go is also available on the Kindle store, in paperback form, and on Bandcamp. The, uh, the, the music was another incredibly strong point. We're going to play you out with uh, um, some of that, but it gets right to the emotional core it, it gets to the, it, it handles uh, the unease the tension it handles the sort of the, the, the operatic rising when, when, uh, whenever Laura's running to try to, to get something done it's, it's with her it's very like the music keeps us with her and then at the end it's it's very soft and it's very sweet and it it takes us where we need to go for that scene. And I can understand why certain people would kick away from that, and I pity them. What I liked the most about the, the sound and the music was yeah, it was very operatic, and it, it did swell up at points, but it was always there in service to the visuals and not the other way around. Like, it didn't artificially enhance the suspense of a scene by having that, like, almost too cliché like violin stings or anything like that it was there to complement like what laura was feeling not what we're supposed to be feeling and it ended up heightening the experience so much it is uh the music was by fernando Velasquez, and uh it's 
fan, it's one of my favourite uh, uh, ghost story scores. Again, it's, uh, it, it makes for excellent listening. Again, I've mentioned the others already. The others has an amazing soundtrack. Uh, that was actually by uh, Alejandro Amenabar, the director. So he directed it, and then he sat down and composed it. Wow. Yeah. Wow, a true Renaissance man in the form of John Carpenter. John Carpenter, Carpenter. <laughs> I was going to say. But uh, his music's better than John Carpenter's. There, I said it. Anyway, um, so uh, your homework, if you haven't seen it, folks, is to see the others and uh, all of the other uh, ghost stories that we've mentioned, including The Changeling, which is totally worth going back and seeing. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier get named support credits. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Next week, we journey way out of our comfort zone to discuss in depth WWE's WrestleMania 30. You heard that correctly. Until a few months ago, we never watched wrestling. But for reasons we'll go into, we started. And this event is worth tracking down on Blu-ray and seeing for yourself on a Sunday with snacks and friends. Even if you don't like wrestling. Especially if you don't like wrestling. We are making this episode for exactly that kind of person. So that's WrestleMania 30. See you in seven days. Okay, so that concludes our Del Toro season. We will be back with whatever he has coming up next. And same as with the Disney series, we will carry on once we reach the quote-unquote end of our Disney series and just keep going along those lines as long as we're podcasting mm. and uh, Lauren we'd like to get you back on for any future GDT stuff uh, you know I'm in Thanks. so I'm happy to come back Thanks for having me on all these. This is the last of the series for now. Thank you for letting me come on to these and just sharing these conversations and going through these movies with a fine-tooth comb I'm sure people are super tired of hearing about me and from me at this point so until next time well, we're not. We have thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed having you on these. You're awesome. Well, thank you. I, I try. Okay, so we're going to uh, uh, play you out on a song called Creditos Finales uh, from the uh, end credits of the uh, film The Orphanage uh, by uh, Fernando Velasquez. And we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out.